What up, though? You're tuned into the Match Map Podcast, which is here to provide the conversations you typically have with interviews by people looking to influence our world and make their mark. For feedback, information, and updates, follow us on Twitter and Instagram on MatchMat underscore for both platforms and MatchMat on YouTube for videos. Also, remember to follow on SoundCloud and subscribe to us on iTunes. Still, MatchMat. Professor Mel Cote has been a professor in media at Bowling Green State University for the last three decades. He is passionate about media and communication effects research. He is doing research on how to use communication and media tools to influence different voices and perspectives in the public sphere and democratic societies. This has led him to examine efforts to mobilize young people to be proactive in the political arena and make their voices heard. Clayton Rosati is an associate professor in the School of Media and Communication at BGSU. His research and teaching focus on critical cultural studies, geographies of media, media policy, and the political economy of culture, urban studies, development communication, and theories of poverty. He is currently working on a book project entitled Times Square's Last Peep Show, New York and the Rise of the Interactive Age. In addition to several other projects involving the power of contemporary media culture politics and social change and social justice in an age of poverty and inequality what up though it's your homie your brother and your friend to the end match match you know i'm your plug i got extra love and today we have some amazing people people i really respect um my professors look at me my <laughs> professors i'm graduating in two weeks like oh, man. that's this is my professor so we have dr mel cody and we have Dr. Rosati here. So you guys tell people a little more about yourselves. Hello, I'm uh, Srinivas Melkote. I am a professor in the uh, School of Media and uh, Communication here at uh, Bowling Green State. And uh, I teach uh, courses in media effects, which I guess is one of the reasons uh, I'm, uh, I'm here to talk about um, media effects um, in society. And I have a lot of interest in um, topics such as uh, youth participation in politics, or rather the lack of youth participation in politics. And um, so we will probably have more uh, opportunity to talk about it, and I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for being here. We appreciate that. I'm uh, Clayton Rosati. Um, I also teach in the School of Media and Communication. Um, my background is as a uh, cultural and economic geographer, and, um, and I study media production and critical cultural theory. Um, and, uh, and I'm really interested in cities, um, uh, and especially uh, youth activism and activism in general. And um, yeah, and so I'm excited to be here to talk about, about these issues um, and to think about how to get uh, how to get things moving in a more critical and, uh, and in my view, left direction. So. <laughs> so so, we're media guys, right? So we're the real critics when it comes down to it. Like, we're the ones who look at movies and commercials and apps, and then we go through it and we're like, all right, you know, this is cool, but. So what is your critique on 18 to 29-year-olds and their attitudes towards politics? 
You want to go first? Yeah, I, yeah. Um, my, you said critique. Uh, one of my constant critiques has been that uh, uh, people in that age group don't show a lot of interest in uh, political affairs. And I don't know why. Uh, in general, young people um, across all historical peri periods have had a little bit of uh, apathy as far as uh, political issues are concerned. Um, however, I find that uh, at the present time, when things I feel are pretty much out of sync, um, I despair that uh, young people are not showing any interest um, in political um, affairs and issues, especially because uh, it, is, uh, it, is, it is your world, uh, you know. I mean, it is not going to be my world, you know. Um, and uh, and I, I feel that the views and values uh, of uh, younger people is so different from the ones who are ruling our country. And uh, you need, need to make yourself heard. And uh, so, again, going back, I, I get very demoralized when I find that there's not a whole lot of activity in this age group when it comes to playing a more um, active, I wouldn't say even an average role in these kinds of uh, issues. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with what, mm. with what you're saying. I, I think um, I've been disappointed in a lot of ways mm. since I got here. Um, when, so when I, when I arrived, it was 2007, so the Obama campaign was the next year. And, and the youth were really mobilized in that, uh, in that election. Um, but the campaign also really mobilized the youth in that election. So they were interested in students and pulling them into, the, into politics. And so, you know, in, in 2008, you had uh, go-karts, or what are they called, golf carts on campus that were affiliated with the Obama campaign that were driving people to vote early at the courthouse pick you up, take you there, drive you back, right? Um, you contrast that with last year's election. There were no golf carts. The, the Clinton campaign didn't do anything on campus. And, um, and so I, I think there's, there's a couple of things going on there. One is that, um, is that the, the parties don't have a consistent strategy for dealing with youth. And I think some parts of of the Democratic Party, for instance, has considered the, considered the youth vote too unpredictable in certain cases, especially in the midterm elections, which tend to be the most important. You know, if you're going to try and get something done uh, as a president, um, you have to have a Congress that's on your side, you know. And if, and if, you, let the, if you let old people and, um, and angry, right-leaning people vote as the only voters in the elections between the presidential elections, then they're going to put in people that, that represent them, and then that you're going to have to fight with them the entire time you're president. And so I think 
for some reason, the Democratic Party hasn't taken the youth vote seriously enough because I think they just consider them not reliable enough. And so instead of thinking about changing that, they've just, I think, abandoned them in most of those elections. Which is interesting because a lot of times young people are often the change agents of things that go on. Like John Lewis only being 19, began yeah. the civil rights movement. That's Dr. Right. King only being 26 when he got involved into the furthest part of the civil rights movement. Malcolm X being a young man as well. All these young people leading these changes. Bobby Lee, you know, Fred Hampton, you know, That's whose right. anniversary of, you know, his death recently came up with his murder. Let's be, let's be That's clear. That's right, right. His assassination. Um, let's be clear Just here. Just this week, yeah. Yeah. Um, so as you guys... Have you guys, you know, gotten older and changed and seen young people get more involved? What have you seen change about social and political activism? Well, a couple of things. I mean, so, you know, like a decade goes by real fast when, you, when you're my age. And so, like, you know, so in 2008, um, you know, people were really excited. The next, it was either the next year or the year after, maybe 2010, um, whenever the, so the social forum, the U.S. social forum was in Detroit, I think it was maybe 2010, and, um, and the, the youth there were saying, electoral politics have failed us, you know, this is, we just need to forget about that as a, as a strategy, which I disagreed with, but I could see how disappointed they were, you know, um, and, and I think what's something has shifted in the in the seven six let's say six or seven years between that and the last election where you see people f realizing oh man electoral politics really matter and, and I think young people realize that now I, I'm not sure that they have enough information to know what's riding on a presidential election or on a midterm election um, I mean I don't know that I do either all the time you know but but that's a, that's a real thing we should worry about. Um, but you know, just last year, just, just this past year, the Democratic Socialists uh, of America have tripled their membership. And so there's something really exciting about what's happening, I think, right now uh, in terms of youth politics, um, where you see Democratic Socialist uh, student organizations popping up all over the country, including in Georgia. Um, and uh, you know places where you just wouldn't expect it, right? And right. Um, uh, and so so I I think I think that things are shifting in, a, in an important way, and and I see I see our role in a, in a lot of ways um, as trying to light up the path that that people need to take, uh, and you know, and see what the logistics are of achieving what they want to achieve. So um, so I don't know. I, maybe that answers your question. I just started rambling. Yeah, yeah it's fine. It's fine. Can you can you repeat one more time what you what have you noticed um, about social and political activism in young people now? Now, um, as uh, Dr. Rosati was saying, the only thing I have noticed was in the 2008 elections there was uh, quite a bit of um, um, youth uh, involvement, probably uh, one of the highest uh, since uh, the heady days of uh, anti-Vietnam. <laughs> Uh, war of the 1970s. Mm -hmm. um, so I have re I've really not seen any concerted uh, youth activism uh, as such um, in the in the last um, couple of decades. Here, it's been pretty passive. Lot of you know, as far as the students are concerned. 
and um, and that's what my remarks were earlier that uh, students are not students uh, young people of that age 18 to 24 are not uh, really uh, focused on uh, issues uh, in their communities issues in our country um, where they can play a very huge role and um, and uh, yeah, so some of this, I wonder though sometimes if if it's important to distinguish, I mean, or how we would distinguish um, between apathy and frustration, you know, or or there or like youth demoralization, because um, because it's I, I notice at least in my classes it's not that students don't care, it's that they they don't have a sense of what they can do, and that's a that's a a di like a slightly different issue, you know, um, and I might be wrong about that, but that, but that's that's always the feeling that I get, and I always wonder, you know, do people actually not care, or do, are they just so frustrated by how seemingly powerless they feel that? Uh, I think a lot of it comes from frustration. So frustration of we didn't talk about social media as such a a big actor in activism now. So everyone on social media now is an activist. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. everyone, because they're frustrated about something, they have to express what's going on. Okay, this is wrong. Yeah. This bill is being passed. I'm not messing with this bill. Like, this is happening in Libya. I'm not messing with this. Or this is happening in, you know, in urban communities. This is something that I do not care for. And so I notice on social media, a lot of the spaces that could be held outside of social media and that could be visible, because visibility is important, right? So a lot of you guys might not share the same space as I do. Yeah. So when I get on Twitter, or I get on Facebook, or I get on Tumblr, or whatever, these people are, if they were marching in the streets the way they marched on Tumblr, <laughs> I can promise you it would be a totally different world. So a lot of it is becoming the separation of spaces. Mm -hmm. But then it becomes, you're receiving so much information about what's going on, it gets exhausting. It gets exhausting. And then it becomes demoralizing. Yeah. And then you feel like you can't do anything because people are like, well, you signed a petition where well, you did this. Well, that's not all there is to do. Right. And I feel like there's a gap. There's a gap in um, people willing to teach young people how to be politically active because they feel that we're just angry people on social media. Mm -hmm. And which was interesting was Obama's foundation that, that he just started in Chicago. I was going to apply, actually, and I was looking at it. Actually, I didn't apply because I had some, had some things to do. So I was like, well, I don't, I don't think right now it's the best move for me. Next year. Yeah, next year. You know, another time. Obama would be here. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm reading and I'm thinking about the, the type of things they want to do and organizing young people. Do you feel that the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or any organization dedicated to activism has really taken time to implement, um, like, spaces and plans for young people to act on and feel a part of? I mean, I, this, is, this is a personal thing for me, mm -hmm. especially in terms of what I see locally. Um, I just think the Democratic Party tends to think that students don't care about anything. They tend to think that, uh, that voters generally are not smart and they they go after you know these sort of predictable groups that they already have in their mind they should be going after, and that's what I've seen year after year, um, and it makes me sad every time I see it you know because in terms of mainstream politics, they're kind of our only hope for 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 winning some semblance of a of a left moving direction in our in our country politically, um, you know. 
so, so for me, it's been exciting to see what Bernie's movement has accomplished and the democratic socialist organization that's come out of that. And, and it's amazing. I mean, just today, I think in the Wall Street Journal, they were talking about how youth are increasingly interested in socialism and critical of capitalism. I mean, that's something you just couldn't have said without a huge panic, you know, 10 years ago, especially 20 years ago. Um, so so I, think, I think there's stuff going on. And the democratic socialists uh, whom I follow on Twitter, um, uh, you know, they have these uh, taillight changing stations where if you have a taillight out, you can go there and get your taillight changed and, and get some political, um, you know, education at the same time. And they're trying to do stuff that, like, the Black Panthers were doing, you know, like these practical things that, that walk you down a path towards appreciating a different kind of freedom, I think. Um, but I'm, re I'm reminded of Fred Hampton's, uh, some things Fred Hampton said a long time ago, which is, if you fail, that's part of the process, and you have to learn from that and try again and try again and try again. Mm -hmm. And I think what happens in, in terms of, of everybody, I mean, we're, we, we want it to work the first time, and if we see it didn't, we think, oh, well, that's, this whole thing is out, instead of, well, maybe I can tweak this a little bit and, and figure that out. I think, the, I think actually the right is much better at doing that than the left is. Mm -hmm. uh, they work on that, you know. They, they work on their messaging. They work on their organizing. And even impossible things like trying to get more, um, more black people and more black youth involved in the Republican Party, they just go after it, you know. Whereas I think on the left we say, oh, nobody's going for, for uh, you know, socialized medicine and we just stop it there, you know. So anyway, rambling again. But I think that's a. Uh, um, mm -hmm. I, I think there are some moves in that direction. We just have to embrace what sometimes seems impossible. Yeah, Bernie Sanders actually went uh, uh, much f farther uh, than uh, many other Democratic leaders, and uh, we did see the kind of impact that he had, particularly on younger people. Um, of all races and uh, both genders. But uh, going back to your question about uh, stoking uh, activism, I feel that the Republican Party willy-nilly has managed to stoke activism and they are reaping, um, um, they're reaping the dividends of that. Um, in the 1980s, uh, Reagan, who himself was a um, social liberal, but an economic conservative, he um, stoked, in, in my opinion, um, the activism of uh, evangelical Christians. And so in the 1980s, we had the moral majority, mm -hmm. and then we had some other groups in Virginia. I forget all the names. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very bad in remembering names. But all of these groups were given a pretty much a free hand, and um, they um, spread out um, in, uh, you know, uh, at, at the grassroots, mm -hmm. and a network of uh, these organizations, uh, evangelical uh, Christian organizations, spread out um, in different parts of the country, 
and they became uh, a part of um, a recruiting ground for the Republican Party. And the Republican Party, over time, has, uh, if we have been following politics in the last 30 years, has become more and more and more aligned uh, to uh, the um, influence and the views of um, these groups who have been um, active um, in supporting the party. And then an, um, and another group that was not really Republican, but probably closer to Republican, was the Tea Party movement, mm -hmm. which was not even there when uh, Mr. Obama got elected in 2008. It, they suddenly sprung up from nowhere, and we know that nothing can spring up from nowhere. <laughs> it was there. And the Tea Party and is an example I use. It's a textbook example that I use of how um, the discussions at your kitchen table have to be elevated beyond the kitchen table to, the, to a wider public sphere. And then it has to then morph into activism in terms of um, voting yeah. and everything to do with political participation. And the Tea Party has done an excellent job of that. I don't personally agree with anything that they say or do, but I am very impressed with the way that the, you know, if there is an example today to learn, it's the Tea Party movement, how a small group, and by the way, it is still a relatively mm -hmm. a small group, has gone from kitchen table to U.S. Congress. They shut the U.S. government down for 17 days in 2013. Just, let's just, let me repeat that again. The government of the United States of America was shut down for 17 days, largely because of the Tea Party group in uh, Republicans in the Congress. That is the kind of power they have. So that is the kind of power that everybody else can have. Maybe there was part luck there, part, you know, I don't know, but definitely that's an example. And so these discussions you're talking about on Facebook and other quasi-public sphere, public spheres has to be translated into um, uh, taking part in elections, either as candidates at, at different levels, but definitely going out there and voting. That matters. I find a lot of young people in fact, a very interesting conversation. Last year, last fall, I was teaching um, an undergrad class, and, uh, you know, elections were, you know, in the month of November, we had the election, and I kept telling people weeks ahead, go vote, go vote, go vote, and all that. And then my class was on a Monday, and so the election was on a Tuesday, and so I reminded again. And after the class, this young man walked up to me, uh, He's a, I'm, I'm saying this because it's relevant, he's, uh, I, from his name and everything, I think he's Hispanic origin. He came and said, uh, uh, I'm not going to vote. I, said, I asked him why. Uh, what's in it for me there? Uh, I said, there's a lot in it for you. And uh, I didn't want to 
carry on the discount. I said, there's a lot in it for you, and we can talk about it. And I don't know whether he voted. Uh, young people have other kinds of issues. Uh, they are not registered in the town in which they go to school. Um, they, their voting precinct is back in their hometown. They have not had the time to transfer, and et cetera, et cetera. There are many, many other issues. But let me kind of um, sum this whole up by saying that, as they say, the proof of a good pudding is in eating it. <laughs> so the proof of all of this is going out there and voting. And Republicans have done a fantastic job of this. As uh, Dr. Rosati was saying, a minority uh, had managed to convince and, uh, you know, have managed to dominate over our, you know, mm -hmm. our political, uh, you know, climate and et cetera. And that is the point. There are more registered Democrats in the United States than Republicans. So let's do the math. If a large majority of these people went and voted, uh, we will, could have, um, you know, uh, candidates uh, who are more progressive. But the problem is they're not going and voting. And what is happening is, and I think I'm taking this uh, discussion to another level, but I think it's important, is that once uh, the, the strategy of the Repub mostly Republican Party, though Democratic Party also has done it, mostly Republican Party is that once they get a majority at the state level in the houses, then they have used that power for things like gerrymandering. Mm -hmm. And things like gerrymandering are um, uh, I, what's, the, what's the term? I'm not getting it right now. These are really very, um, not just, they're very dysfunctional. So what is happening is that we are locking up districts where the incumbent will win. It's not may win, will win. And right now in states like Texas and other states, Republicans cannot lose and and that for me is um, is dangerous for a for a representative democracy, and particularly this coming election, this midterm election. I don't know how many young people, and I'm asking you, Matthew. I don't know how many young people realize that this midterm election is going to affect us profoundly, because the 2020 census mm -hmm. is around the corner. And what happens is every 10 years when we have the census, the results of the census are then used by the elected legislature in every state to gerrymander, which basically is to carve out the electoral district in such a way that your candidate cannot lose. And and this election is very important. And Mr. Obama has told us, um, you know, and, um, um, and that this is very important because, 20, because 2018, 2018 election is very important for the 2020. And so again, voting does matter uh, because of all the shenanigans that are going on in terms of gerrymandering, where they're locking up districts. 
um, so that you cannot change. And that's why we are having these kinds of humongous problems in our country today uh, where things are completely out of sync in terms of what majority of the people in the country want and desire and uh, what kinds of policies that are being enacted. This is, I mean, just to piggyback on this, I think it's wor worthwhile to talk about what's actually at stake in a, in a lot of different elections. And, and, and one of those things is the accumulation of a certain kind of power at the state and local level through gerrymandering and occupying the state house and, and, uh, and those bodies. But there's also the Supreme Court justices, the, um, the federal court justices, uh, judges. And, and all of these appointees that are picked by executive, um, you know, preference. And, um, and so you think about, you know, we, the reason I'm talking about this is because a lot of people, a lot of my students actually, before the last election said, they're both the same. Both Hillary and Trump are the same. And they said, you know, neither party is gonna do anything different, they're both the same. And, I, and my response was always, look, one is gonna, is gonna protect your water and the other one isn't, you know. One is gonna put somebody in the Supreme Court that is gonna protect your rights and the other one is gonna put somebody in the Supreme Court, co Supreme Court that's gonna protect corporations' rights. Um, and, uh, and so I think it's really important for us, even when we're disappointed with the Democrats, to talk about the differences uh, and, and what's at stake in those differences. Uh, yeah, and we don't talk about differences a lot, right? So you both of you mentioned, you know, you both teach classes, so you teach young people, which I, I couldn't imagine, you know, being older and knowing more and be talking around to young people all day. I don't know if I could do that after time. Be like, ah, you know, I, I feel the put same. Down way. Your, like I know you think of put down your phone, man. Like stop <laughs> eating food in my class. <laughs> I don't mind the eating. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> but one thing I was thinking is political stake. You said young people feel like they don't have a stake in politics. How do we emphasize that? people 18 to 29 or even people earlier than that have a stake in politics. How do we establish that? You know, I was just thinking about this one while Dr. Malcody was talking and, and I was thinking, you know, young people should be interested, I mean, everybody should be as interested in voting as they are in earning money. And I think, you know, and, and a lot of us have to worry about how we're going to earn money for on, on a daily basis, you know. Um, and to some extent, you know, take something as, as simple and as uninteresting as net neutrality, right? As boring as net neutrality is. That's going to cost people money if we lose net neutrality. You think about what the priorities are at the state level for funding higher education. If they choose to put more money into prisons, which they have done for, for years, that's costing people money on the, in, in a really tangible way people have to think about what is this going to cost me if, if this particular party wins. And, and unfortunately, I'm afraid that, that neither party is so interested in carving out those differences in policy very clearly. I think we tend to have, especially at the state and local level, these sort of personality campaigns. Uh. And, you know, I'm, an, I'm a likable guy. I have good Christian values, you know, et cetera, et cetera. No one talks about, well, this, if I do this, it's going to make it cheaper for you 
to um, to go to prison than it is to go to or you know it, or more yeah cheaper for you to go to prison than it is for you to go to college, yeah. or um, or it's going to make your 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 teachers at at high school have to buy their own um, supplies for their students yeah. I mean, things that are already happening you know and so we need to talk about that stuff in a very real way. Um, I remember I, at the beginning of my policy class, I, I always showed that that debate between Kennedy and Nixon, mm -hmm. you know, that, that televised debate, and um, and Kennedy is really clear. He's like, "Look, this isn't about me." And I'm not saying Kennedy was, you know, was a, a, a huge wonder or anything, but but it's interesting to see how how the conversation has changed. He says, "Look, you want to question my abilities? It's not about me. It's about my what my party stands for, schools. You know, I forget all of those things, but you know." We're the party of education. We're the party of blah blah blah, and and we don't do that so much anymore. And and I think some of that is because, and I'm harder on the Democrats maybe than than most people, but I think some of that is because the Democrats have lost the narrative, um, that that the right has has seized. I mean, they've seized a future, um, that is supposed to look better than the present, and the and the Democratic Party is basically like, well, we want to give you a little tweak here and there, and um, but we're not sure if we want to raise the minimum wage, or we're not sure if we can really get behind single payer health care. You know, these sorts of things are maybe too radical for us to touch, and um, and all the while the right has just gotten more and more radical, and uh, and so there's something important to talk about there, about this fear on the left of, of expressing some sort of vision of a future that's better than the, than the one we live in. And, uh, and usually when the Democrats do that, it's very vague. We get something like hope, you know, which, you know, I, I loved that campaign. And, and, uh, it was cute. It was cute, you know, <laughs> and, 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 you know, and I still sing that song, um, I'll Always Love Obama, you know, he can change the world. Um, but, I, but man, you know, I think, I think that stuff is cheap, and um, and so we need, if we're going to win things, and we're going, if we're going to, if we're going to have something that motivates, especially young people, to get out and do it, I think we have to talk about what it costs. Or, or I don't know. I'm just saying this now. I'm thinking about it off the top of my head. But one way might be to talk about what it costs if you don't vote. Uh, in in uh, in a way that makes sense for your interests. So, yeah, what is at stake? Um, as uh, Dr. Rosati has been saying, there are lots of things at in, at, at stake, and as uh, as he was saying, many of these are inta uh, intangible, and so it's very difficult to uh, to um, to visualize and articulate them. Um, so let me start over there, um, younger folks. Um, I have, as I have noticed, my own my own kids growing up, they have a very different outlook of the world um, than uh, some of our older people who are running the country. The younger folks have much more respect um, for diversity, and uh, they are much more in line with uh, globalization than the older folks. And truly, that is the direction in which the world is going and if uh, you know that is, is is a simple fact but yet we have today in our own country leaders and policies that are backward looking 
We have right now a, a case going on in the Supreme Court where a baker is saying that he has the right to discriminate against gays. Okay? Um, I, it'd be very hard for me to imagine that an 18 to 28-year-old would have the same kind of uh, visceral, um, hatred is a very strong word, dislike for gays. Okay, they have they take uh, in my view a much more uh, relaxed view, saying, "Hey, if uh, you know if somebody wants to be that way, that is that is okay by me." You know, and as I said earlier, the world 21st century that we have moved into and will continue to get deeper into that is that kind of a world. But these are all intangibles. Um, but certainly, the young people would like their world to be one where there is no discrimination based on lifestyle, discrimination based on religion, uh, discrimination based on um, sexual orientation. These are about as important today as civil rights was in the 50s and uh, leading up to the 50s and 60s. I mean, and um, the court case that, uh, that made uh, marriages between gays, uh, gay marriage legal, was a fantastic victory for the progressives and uh, the Obama administration. And that was also the crossing of the red line for the conservatives. And I did Two years ago, I was uh, I visited an undergrad class and I talked about this and I told them, watch out! This Obama has crossed a red line. He now we are going to face such an opposition because there is a core of uh, people in this country who so dislike, who so hate this. Okay, and there is going to be a blowback. So I. Now with the new political climate now, I'm seeing more and more of those views um, being articulated into policies now. So the, if young people want a world with uh, no discrimination based on these kinds of um, uh, you know, issues, yes. But let me talk about the more tangible things, okay? Most students take out a loan when they go to college, okay? That is something immediate, something direct, something you can feel, very tangible. Mm -hmm. And I had told this young man who told me that he's not going to vote that in a sentence or two, it does matter in terms of student loans, in terms of um, federal grants given out to students, you know, and uh, if they are going to pull back some of these things, and lo and behold, in the new tax that is now going to be become a law very soon, who who got the shaft? The young people. So now, graduate students cannot deduct interest uh, on their tax forms from their. Uh, loans, and especially if you're going to an expensive college or, or going for a professional degree, that is a whole lot of money that can make you or break you. 
And of course, there were a few sporadic and random protests across university campuses, but they went ahead and they did it. And they will continue to do it because for a politician, if you do not vote, you, they don't care for you because you are absolutely no threat to a politician if they know you're not going to vote. And so, yes, young people uh, who depend on federal loans um, and uh, federal grants, they will see huge drastic cutbacks. Um, and also, let me end by saying that matters uh, relating to Social Security and Medicare. Obviously, these are matters that affect older folks, uh, more of my age. Have, is, is it a coincidence um, that those are never touched any time that we are talking about, um, you know, budget deficits and all that? These two are, by the way, I'm not, I'm not against Social Security or Medicare. Please don't get me wrong. That's, I'm just using an example. Mm -hmm. These constitute a huge chunk, okay? But yet, time and again, politicians don't touch them. They don't even go near them. Where do they raid? They raid on those, in those areas and issues that affect the young people. And so today, people of my age are laughing all the way to their bank um, because policies are so old people friendly. And I, I certainly want it to be old people friendly because I'm, <laughs> I'm getting there. But unless young people start taking this seriously and play an active role in politics, you know, you are not going to have uh, friendly policies, to, um, you know, uh, towards younger folks and more progressive. Um, when I say more progressive, more realistic of the 21st century kinds of society that we want to build. That's very yeah. interesting. Oh. I, just can I, I sorry, yeah, can yeah, I yeah, pick you back? Do, yeah, yeah, yeah. Two things that, that I, that I want to do. One is, is I actually want to backtrack on something that I said earlier about it being cheaper for you to go to prison than to go to college. Because that's only for, that, that's a, I misspoke when I said that. That's, it's only from a certain perspective that it's, that it's maybe cheaper. And I'm not even sure that that's the right way to describe it. But recently, it was shown that, that on average in the US, it costs $70,000 a year to put someone in prison. And that's more than it costs to go to Harvard per year. So, so we have to take seriously where the priorities by which our money, our social resources are being spent as a society. So that's, I just wanted to kind of correct that um, because I, the way that I said it didn't make any sense. Yeah, I'm glad you went back and corrected. You know, we always have opportunities to go back and correct ourselves <laughs> and change and change our opinions and views. And if we have same opinions, we can go back and we can make them more detailed and more accurate. And that's what I wanted to lead to the next point, um, talking about political correctness. So we have, so we in classes, you know, I'm in Dr. Rosati class, we always had these, our whole semester turned into just a big discussion. And one thing I noticed was that the person who I expected to speak, the person who I assumed had the most power in the room, which is the white heterosexual Christian male, who, you know, have some, have some money in their pockets, you know, I assumed that they would be the first one to talk into class. And I was, I was ready for war. 
<laughs> like, you know, like I'm ready. I've done my political training. I was like, you know, whatever someone has to say, I'm prepared to backflip and dodge and cartwheel and evade and fight about what I think. But I noticed they were quiet. So in your classrooms, have you have you noticed that about people who you assume have the most political power and social power are the most quiet? Or is that just depending on what type of class you're teaching? Well, Matt, I'm glad you brought that up. That I mean, that semester, so just some background on it. That was the semester that uh, there were, so somewhere in the middle of that semester, riots broke out in, in Charlotte, I think. Um, and, uh, and so we talked about it as a class, and I, and I suggested, well, why don't, we, why don't we switch our readings for the second half of the semester and read about race and, uh, and police violence? And, um, and, and I was a little worried about it. I asked people, you know, how, you know, you think we can handle this? And everyone said, yeah, of course, we're adults and, and whatever. And, um, and so that was what we did. It was, it was a good bit of work for me to come up with, you know, new readings on the spur of the moment and whatever. And I was really hoping that that would become an opportunity for, um, uh, for what was a pretty mixed class, actually, um, to talk to each other. And um, and I was I was really frustrated by by a couple of things actually. One of them was how little the white students said, and and the reason that they didn't say anything in general, those who didn't say anything, um, had to do with they thought they were going to get jumped on by by everybody else in the class for their views, and there was no point in talking about it. And to some extent, that has everything to do with their their sort of larger social position and and power that that we attribute to their race and gender. And um, and it's hard to think about what it would take, you know, to make that a comfortable place for them. And certainly a frustrating that's certainly a frustrating question for, for instance the black students in the class who are like, why should I have to take care of the feelings of these white students who, you know, who don't want to play in this, in this sandbox and, uh, and don't want to deal with this problem? And, and I still struggle with that. But anyway, that's just some background to, to, from my perspective in terms of what that class looked like. Um, and what... I mean, I think we did have some good discussions from from time to time, and not oh, yeah. not all the white students were were silent, but but there was a crew that I think thought, well, I'm not I'm not changing my mind on this. This has become like like Rush Limbaugh said it was going to become, and you know, and I and I'm exaggerating here, but you know, I no one said that to me, <laughs> but you know, I mean, I think most most of the time, white people have been warned about about conversations about race and then warned that they should be careful what they say and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're actively questioning how they think about the world um, one example of this is we had a discussion about this great article about the welfare queen right mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan's uh, you know devil incarnate that that was his uh, was his Leverage for for trying to reform welfare, and um, uh, and it was surprising to me how many of the white students um, totally misread that article. I mean, the article 
talked about how this one person, uh, and I'm blanking on her name now. Linda Taylor, maybe? There you go. Linda That's Taylor. it. Linda Taylor. Good job. Good work. Thank you. You know I read it. Hey, yeah, I, know, I know you read it. No, that, that makes me, you just made my day. Thanks. So, um, yeah, Linda Taylor was a maniac. You know, she, she was maybe responsible for killing people. She stole all these identities. She was... Kidnapped she, kids. Kidnapped kids. Whole right. babies. Yes. Sold children. <laughs> she sold... She was... A lunatic. Yeah. Well, I, I shouldn't use that word. She was, she was really, a, 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 an outlier in in our social world, right? And the point of the article was, hey, let's dive into this one person, that this politician and this political campaign used to represent all people on welfare, and see how ridiculous it is to choose this one person as the representative. But I was surprised by how many. Students and 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 white students especially said, "Yeah, people cheat on welfare, and we need to we need to worry about that." And that was what they took out of that article, not that you know an anecdote isn't data, or you know that that this person is clearly not representative of what um, uh, of what you know people who who are poor generally do uh, do in their daily lives, and so. Um, so that was that was disturbing to me, and you know, and I got a chance to respond to them on their papers and things. But um, you know, I I still struggle with how to deal with that in a way that that isn't just browbeating students. Mm-hmm. Um, that's still dialogical, um, but gets at what what they I guess perceive as the benefit of of not changing their mind on that and uh, and that, so the, yeah that's a hard thing I struggle with that all the time I still try and take the risk though whenever I can to have those conversations um, but um, but yeah anyway I, this doesn't get to the political correctness issue but I it's that's some background on that because I had a little I had a small I had a definition of political correctness well um, two parts of political correctness that I actually was looking at President Obama's um, exit interview with NPR before he left office for the final time, and he said, so we're talking about political correctness is, correctness is us being socially aware and conscious. Okay, this word makes me feel like an outsider, and this word makes me uncomfortable as an American. I would prefer you don't use it, or I prefer you not refer to me in that manner. But he said the problem becomes when it becomes more of walking on eggshells instead of beating the yolk, right? right. So you walking on eggshells and you hear everything like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm messed up. Like, so everybody's going to, you know, flip out on me yeah. and I can't discuss, well, I don't believe in affirmative action or I believe we should change welfare. So do you guys think there's any way that we can kind of change that culture so we can start building a discussion? Because it seems like because of that, we can't form coalitions anymore because people can't come together with similar ideas because everybody is either too afraid of offending another person. I have a view on this that that I'm afraid to express because because I'm afraid of getting jumped on about it. But I'm going to express it. I, I don't. No, 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 no. I, I, don't, I don't. It doesn't matter. I I'm a tough person sometimes. But you know, one of the things that I saw. I mean, look, I've I've been involved in um, in in activism for racial equality for a long time, like since I was in college. And uh, racial justice, and um, and I, 
and so I have I've seen a lot of a lot of stuff in as far as it relates to to people across races trying to communicate with each other and um, and one of the things that I noticed in in our class for instance and this is just an example we can we can share um, is that when one of the one student and I don't remember I mean it doesn't matter who his name what his name is but um, when one student said something uh, about about how poor people don't work enough or how how welfare recipients don't work enough or something like and 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 there was you know there was kind of a corner where where a lot of the black students sat together and it was and 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 folks said you know oh you know here he goes or something I can't remember what what was said but there was this sort of outcry from the corner and um, and I thought and I thought yeah now no one's gonna speak right and 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 I'm not saying that it's it's the fault of the of those students that you know that vocalized their discontent with what he said, but I think we really need to think strategically. And by we, I mean I mean white allies, black students, white radicals, black radicals. Um, we need to think about think strategically about how to have conversations that draw people into the conversation. Instead of, instead of expressing how they might be wrong in in their in the conversation, and this is a general problem I think with the left. We like to talk about we like to talk about who we don't want to be around, where whereas the right, you know, the Christian right that that Dr. Malcote was talking about in the 80s and 90s, they would go everywhere, they wouldn't rule out anybody, and they would have a a pleasant conversation with you no matter what you said and they were trained to do that I think on the left and, and this isn't everybody and I think it's changing actually for, for the better but I think on the left what we tend to do is is say this person is corrupt and we have and we have this this view of them as bankrupt we shouldn't have to deal with them right the, this thing that that person said is racist I shouldn't have to deal with them and and that may be true. It may be true. We shouldn't have to deal with them, but but the reality is, we need to win. And how do we do that? And 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 so, the thing that that I am uncomfortable with in terms of what I'm saying is that that puts a lot of onus on oppressed people, to pull. Those in privileged positions into the conversation. And and that's a hard thing to think about. Right, and it's a hard thing for me to think about asking for, but um, but to some extent, there are lives depending on it, uh, and and I kind of wonder sometimes, well, what is it worth to save lives to keep people from spending, you know, twenty five years in prison, or to keep, you know, what what should we be doing to um, uh, to make these conversations more productive with people who who may view it as I got nothing to lose in this and why should I even talk about it everybody's just judging me anyway so that's that's a you know that's a problem I'm struggling with and I'm I'm willing to uh, to take some feedback on that one I yeah th this is a very interesting discussion I think what should pull people everybody including young people uh, uh, together is start having 
um, we have already started conversations about the world that we are we have entered and will continue to get deeper in as in the 21st century it's going to be very different from the one from the earlier century from the one in which i grew up okay um information technologies have um, as you know in the last 10 years um, have revolutionized the way we work and play and uh, it you know and globalization is actually part of the reason that globalization has become an important force is also because of the new information communication technologies so it's a going to be a very different world and what kind of world is this going to be this is a world where we are going to have an increasingly multicultural population a b population where there are um, many more young people than older people and i'm talking about the the countries in asia africa and latin america especially not so much about north america and europe where we still have older folks um, in, uh, in in large numbers but that's not so in many countries in the world okay so how do we face this increasingly uncertain future okay and we know um, from um, uh, you know from uh, what has been happening is that we need to have new ideas old ideas old strategies old techniques may not be the best to face an increasingly uncertain world and here I would like to take the example of the most successful corporations and the most successful entities today. Um, they could be Google, it could be Amazon, it could be Facebook, and it could be many others. Look at the kind of culture they are supporting, the kind of workforce they are attracting, okay? And um, they, you know, and not our political leaders, seem to be the leaders right now in facing this very uncertain future. And this is a world where it doesn't matter whether you're black, brown, or white. It doesn't matter if uh, you are young or middle-aged or old. We need new ideas. And we need to get a whole bunch of people together and brainstorm and teamwork. And that's what they do. And that's why they are so successful and they'll continue to be successful. Whereas... A lot of leaders around the world today are still in that old silo mentality of what worked for my parents and my grandparents, and that is the... But that's not going to be the world. For example, let's take United States. And I've been saying this for a long time. By 2025, many cities in the United States, um, uh, in many cities, uh, whites will not be a majority they might still be the single largest group, okay? By 2050, the, in the United States, whites will not be a majority. That's one. Two, males are going to be, this is my view, are going to be disempowered more and more. Uh, more females are going to be in the workforce, more females are going to be, compared to the last century, educated. Okay. Three, 
English language. English language is facing competition from Spanish. After all, uh, this was once upon a time a place where Spanish and native Indian languages were, were, the, were more prominent, all right? And so all these forces are coming back. And I, I do, if um, you know, putting myself in the shoes of, a, of an older white male, okay, I can see threat in every direction. My language is becoming secondary. So people are saying, speak in English, speak in English. My race is now suddenly, um, you know, it's not that, um, you know, is losing its majority. My gender, you know, if you were a male, is facing uh, competition from females. This is, a, in their view, a very dangerous world. And they are doing whatever they can to prop up the old world of theirs. But that world is going to be, is changing. Like throughout history, we have changed and we're changing. And so, coming back to the main point here is that how we can draw people together is not in terms of your race, and not in terms of some other demographic factor, but ideas, techniques, strategies to survive in an in an increasingly uncertain world where we have social, cultural, and ecological problems that are threatening our very survival. So I would say if that's one reason, that is the reason of bringing uh, people of diverse backgrounds, different genders together. And, uh, and that's what I, I think is the, is the best answer at this time. And private corporations like the new, like the new and upcoming uh, organizations, they're doing that. And they're succeeding that, in that. Yeah, I, just to piggyback on this, I had a, I, I mean, I love what you're saying. I, I had a professor in, um, in college who said to me one day, he was in my African American studies degree, um, he said, yeah, you know, everybody wants to talk about all this philosophical bullshit. They should just leave, leave that aside and talk about an issue. And things are easier when you just pick an issue and talk about it. Um, having said that, I think there's also uh, a, lot, a lot to say about, about, about Dr. Malcody's point having to do with, with this world looking dangerous for white men. Um, Especially, you know, not wealthy white men, uh, and that's a that's a that's an important thing. You know, we've watched wages stagnate over over like thirty years uh, under a set of policies that that didn't work for these uh, for for anybody actually in this country, uh, except for like a very small group. Um, but I, to some extent, we could say that that even that even the the I, the white identity that people constructed or had constructed with them in the U.S. after World War II, let's say, didn't work for them. Um, so whiteness became became this tool for keeping black people, or became this reason for keeping black people out of unions, for um, for keeping black people out of neighborhoods and 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 other people that they that they didn't want uh, mixing in their real estate markets. And in the end, these had like really catastrophic effects to some extent. Uh, 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 like you take the labor union movement. I mean, it was it was kind of killed by its its inequality internally. And 
and it's worth it, I think, to to see how how even these old ideas failed the people that clinged to them in uh, in in so such vehement ways. The other thing is that, and I, and I I really agree with this with this point that we need to think about new ideas. I, I mean, I also think we ought to think about old ideas that got murdered, like you know, like what the Black Panthers were were thinking about in 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 certain extents. Um, you know, why did they get murdered, and what could those ideas be doing now if, if they were put into effect? But, but in terms of thinking about new ideas, one of the reasons why people, why, say, white people get so scared, I think, is because we're always thinking about the world in terms of, of scarcity, as if there's only enough stuff for a few people. And it doesn't have to, and, and I think one of the most important things for us to think about is, hey, there can be enough for everybody to have something, uh, something good. And, but instead what we get pulled into is this conversation about, well, we have fewer jobs now. Who is it that's going to get those, those jobs? It's like uh, that scene from the, is it The Dark Knight? I can't, I can't remember where. The Joker, um, you know, breaks a pool cue and says, okay, the one who wins is going to get, yeah, you know, to be I on my... That. I mean, that's the world we live in, is, you know, you see all these, you see students everywhere wondering, well, how am I going to get into the college that I want to get into? There's so many PhDs in the world and, and not enough spaces in colleges. It's crazy, right? I mean, there, there, are, there are these kinds of scarcities that we have that I think we need to really rethink. And, and, I, and to some extent, we need to think about our race and and gender conflicts in part around those issues of scarcity. I mean, there are other things that, at work there, at work there, but you know, when you look at Make America Great Again, that has everything to do with, with the effects of, robotis, uh, of, of automation and outsourcing and all of these things that created f fewer jobs in, in the U.S. And then everybody had to, you know, fight over the pool cue to see who was going to get it stuck in their eye to get the one, you know, worst paying job. Um, and so, so that's the kind of, I, I think, when we start thinking about new ideas, we need to think about, about a world outside of this austerity that we live in and have gotten used to. Um, and we can't talk about that as separate from, from the growth of white supremacist movements in the U.S. Uh, and the growth of of bro culture at, at tech firms and and things like that, you know, we have to imagine what it what the relationship might be between a culture of equality culturally, you know, uh, in terms of identities, and also an economy of equality in terms of access to resources and being able to live well. So. Okay, one last thing before we wrap things up here. So, I, if you had any advice for any student, you know, either entering college or they're just now leaving college, what could we do? Matter of fact, let's, let's direct this to me because I'm, I represent that age group, right? So, what can I do as a student, and not just as a student, as an American citizen, to be more active in influencing change around me? Can, can I flip this question back yeah, on you yeah, yeah, and ask yeah. you, what do you see people your age doing already? Uh, you know, what, what is it that, that motivates people your age? I mean, you know, look, I'm old. I watch Murder, She Wrote, you know, I mean, <laughs> Simon and Simon. I mean, you know, the, I'm, 
so I'm, I'm out of touch to some extent. I don't know when that happened. I don't think I, I mean, I wasn't always that way. But at some point, I, I, it became clear that I wasn't quite sure what. After what people, your 40th birthday. That was probably exactly <laughs> it. So <laughs> it still hurts. So no, uh, but I'd like to, first, I'd like, I mean, I, I really want to talk about this. But I'd, I'd like to know what you see going on, you know, in terms of, in terms of, people your age that are interested in similar things? I see people my age being overwhelmed. Yeah. And they're being overwhelmed because I don't think a lot of us understand that we control what we consume on social media. So you would be bombarded with, you know, Trump is doing this. Like, remember he was throwing the paper towels in Puerto Rico? Everybody was exploding on my timeline. He's throwing paper towels. I'm like, well, I mean, it's kind of the way it's angled. I'm like, I mean, people weren't really mad. That he was throwing, like, paper towels. Like, it didn't matter. But it was like, we have so much... Okay, so Dr. Bussell was talking about the difference between bullshit and lying, right? Mm -hmm. So lying being that no one knows the truth. The truth is being controlled. So you can lie and cover it up and nobody will know. Then you know, over time, you know, you have to cover it up and then bam. But the thing about bullshit is, the thing about bullshit is, the thing about bullshit is when everyone knows the truth. Like, for example, when President Trump said that, that wasn't me talking on the tape to Billy Bush, even though months ago he literally said, like, yeah, I shouldn't have said that. That was me on the tape. So that is between lying and bullshit. I just think that we're being, we feel like we're fed so much bullshit that we don't have the stake in more and everything is bullshit. But I feel like we haven't understood that we don't have to eat the bullshit. <laughs> like, you know, like, you don't have to literally have this happening in your life consistently. But there's a contrast here, right, between, between being fed up with the bullshit and also being totally outraged by things, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, had to, I had to kick Talib Kweli off of my Twitter feed, man, because he, <laughs> he was fighting all the time. So people are outraged about stuff, right? I mean, or am I wrong about this? People are outraged. They, a lot of people don't know what to do. So, and especially with younger people, because younger people, I feel like we've really had a generation gap with people connecting with us and helping us out. So in 2012, when President Obama ran again, I was part of Organizing for America, and I was in high school. So I was going around getting people registered to vote. Like, I was educating people, like, policies. Like, I used to, like, get into, like, debates and things like that. So I was always around, like, that kind of environment. But I feel like for, for young people, the older people don't give them a place where they feel like their voice matters. So, like, there's a shirt, right, for, I'm a, you know, I'm a black, I'm a black man. You know, there's a shirt that says, um, I'm not my ancestors, um, these hands is like the quote. And so I'm like, damn, you really don't know your ancestors. Like, so I was looking at it. What did you say? More, more, come get it said, um, I'm not my ancestors, these hands. These so, hands? Yeah. So, you know, they all about fighting and things. I'm like, well, you don't understand. Our ancestors like fought. These are some of the hardest fighters like, ever to exist. And I feel we have that gap to the point where, it's been so much bullshit that goes on the line. We feel like the people who are supposed to support us are also full of bullshit. And so now it's just us. And so now we're having these debates and these discussions, but they're on Facebook. They're on Twitter. They're on Instagram. They don't move farther than they're supposed to because we don't know who we can connect to. We don't know who to call. Like, we don't know who to reach out to. Like you had the church and the civil rights movements, but who's the black church now? The black church is what? Twitter? Black Twitter? You know, you go on Twitter all the time for information like, I'm hungry, you know what I'm saying? Somebody like, oh, I can give you a swipe here. Or I need, you know, I have a GoFundMe, and I want somebody to help me pay for my medical. Somebody will help, literally give you a campaign to help you do that. So now people are turning into Twitter. But the problem is Twitter is only so far. Twitter is digital, and it's not in your face. It's not on the ground, and it's not loud enough. It's not loud enough when you put your phone down. So once you put your phone down, it stops mattering. 
It only matters he put the bullshit back up again. <laughs> so I feel like we're just frustrated with so much bullshit to the point when we put the phone down and realize we're not being fed bullshit. But since we know it's bullshit, we can take action against the bullshit. We just don't anymore because we're just too frustrated. We're just too exhausted. And that's sad to be at 20 is exhausted. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I yeah. just got out of high school. Like, I should <laughs> not be tired. Well, there's a lot of bullshit right now going on. And uh, I think if I was a, a young man, I would be pretty outraged. Uh, take this whole uh, c uh, climate change denial. That's, uh, that is super bullshit. Um, you know, and in order to make that argument, they have, uh, you know, ramped it up with uh, all kinds of other arguments, which are also bullshit, that scientists are liars. Mm -hmm. Okay? Um, you know, um, a couple of months ago, we had the total um, solar eclipse. Was it total? Yeah. We did not have total solar eclipse in maybe. Bowling Green. We had 87% at the most. But um, a few days before, a few weeks before, um, I was informed uh, through the media that this total solar eclipse is going to happen on such and such a day, okay, A, B, such and such a time in the afternoon. I was also told it is going to, 87% is going to be reached exactly at 2.28 p.m., in Bowling Green, okay? Now, who said all these things? The scientists, <laughs> right? I didn't hear one person during that time saying, that's bullshit. Total solar eclipse is not going to take place on that day. It's not going to take place in the afternoon. But we all accepted that. And the time came, and 2.28 p.m., I think uh, it was, uh, you know, uh, pretty dark. So. On the one hand, we depend on scientists without questioning. We depend on our professors, and we pay big money to come to universities and listen to our professors, who then use science and literature to tell us what things are. But at the same time, we have a narrative going on in our country that scientists are lying about climate change, which is super bullshit, okay? Mm -hmm. Then that's one. Then we can take uh, other kinds of issues like race relations and this, this whole idea about uh, sexual orientation, you know, that somehow gay people are, are really, um, you know, weird or fundamentally different from other human beings and so on and so forth, which a lot, many young people do, do not share that view at all. That is bullshit, okay? So this kinds of bullshit will continue to happen. If uh, young people and other progressive groups don't deal with that, and then this takes me back to the beginning, in a democratic society, the way we have to deal with it is to go and participate in the political process. We chose that kind of representative government, and so um, all of this uh, discussion on Facebook is great, on Twitter is great, but at the end of the day, it has to be translated into uh, going and voting, not just in your state and national elections, but in your community elections, you know, and also participating in different, uh, you know, activities and meetings and uh, stuff like that. And so action is needed. Uh, and if you can get more and more and more people to participate in these kinds of actions, 
um, and vote because that is very very important. We had young people, um, you know, in two thousand was what year was it? Two thousand fifteen when what is that? Occupy. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember. That might have been thirteen. Okay, twelve or thirteen. Maybe. What did yeah. they achieve? They did make a. They they did tell you know ev probably everybody who uh, you know in the country who wanted to know knew that this thing was going on. But what political outcome did it have? Zero. Cipher. Now contrast that with the Tea Party group. And what and they also had you know certain strong views. And look at the political outcome of that. And I use these as two textbook examples. These guys went and riled people up and then made them vote, made them, you know, uh, get elected, and uh, in and then they use that clout to um, to increase their clout even more. So I think goes back to we have to have young people participate in po you know in political affairs at all levels, from your Twitter feeds to acting. And I think that is the way to go. Otherwise, we'll have a minority um, um, group. Group, minority groups in our society who are going to be electing our leaders. It's a shame that 40% of the country elects the leaders, you know. Yeah, and, and, and that's even lower on the midterm elections, right? In between the presidential elections, that, that number is, is even smaller sometimes. And so, so I, I totally agree. I mean, I think when, when we think about what's happening in our society now, it's clear that we can't ignore the electoral process. Um, I mean, I think, I think there was a long time where this kind of anarchist tendency prevailed where we said, look, forget the state, forget trying to mess around with, these, with this crooked institution. And, and I think to some extent we have to get our, our hands dirty in, in that now. Um, and so, so the question then becomes around what, is, what issues and how do you have effect? Uh, how do you make effects in in that um, in in that situation? And one of the things, and and the, you know, the the Tea Party is interesting because they get it 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 is on one hand a grassroots movement. I mean, it appeals to to a, a certain grassroots in in our country. On the other hand, it's part of a program that the Koch brothers and other really wealthy interests in our country have been waging for a long time. And we haven't quite dealt with that issue. Um, but we also have to deal with, with the reality of our politics now, which is that there are, there are a lot of wealthy interests that can control messages in a way that we can't, that are interested in, for instance, you know, maybe buying CNN so that they can't be the, the voice. You know, I mean, we have to think about these, these things. Yeah. So what does it mean to have, I mean, there's some speculation that this is why Trump has been picking on CNN so much, um, is because he's hoping to devalue their stock so that then one of his friends could buy. You know, I mean, Jeez. it's cool to think about that stuff because we have to, you know. If you don't, then, you get, then you're surprised, you know. Blindside. Uh, but... But I think we have to deal with a world, a political world. And when I say we, I mean people who are not part of that 1% that group that, that is born into um, uh, or, or otherwise has access to, to these really privileged positions where they can affect change relatively easily. We have to deal with um, 
uh, asymmetrical conflict. Mm. We have to figure out a way of having an effect without having, you know, big tanks or drones or aircraft carriers, you know, and, um, and so because we don't have that finance on our side. So that's something we have to think about. And we have to think about it in, uh, in, in ways that make sense with the institutions that we're dealing with. To some extent, you know, we're not dealing with poll taxes precisely anymore, right? We're not dealing with grandfather clauses or things like this that, um, that, that keep people in such blatant ways away from voting. So voting is, is something that we can, we can have access to in a relatively equal way. And, um, but the question is how do we, then it becomes a question of building consciousness and excitement and, um, and an aspiration through that, that process. And that's a hard thing to do, I think. Um, but I think history and talking to, to older people is really useful, actually, in part because it shows us, it can show us what's at stake. Um, uh, so I had this conversation with my, my I, I tell this story sometimes. My dad called me one day and was just mad, politically mad. You know, he had seen something in Virginia and was just upset about it. He lives in Virginia. And, um, and he said, you know, God damn it, people don't understand how bad things have gotten. He said, when I hitchhiked across the country in the 60s, I got to California, I enrolled in college for free, and I got welfare because I was a student and I got a job in a week. I can't, I can't know if he actually got a job in a week, but I decided to fact check the other two, right? Mm -hmm. And it's true. Before 1968, college in California was free. And also before Reagan, uh, who was the governor of California, um, decided to, uh, to punish the activism of, Calif of California students, um, by taking away their food stamps and, and welfare for being students, it was you could also get public assistance for being a student. And um, and so when you yeah right wow is the right and it's true like people don't understand how bad it's gotten. I mean I've had students here who had to choose between paying their tuition and paying their their heating bill. Mm -hmm. What are you supposed to tell a student like that? You know, but we and I think it's really difficult for us to understand that this has been a long march towards having very little um, in, in, terms of, in terms of public goods. And, um, and we have to understand who has done that, what parties have done that, um, what political philosophies have done that, so that we can build an antidote, antidote to that in our, in our organizing. Um, so, you know, who made it possible uh, or impossible to declare bankruptcy on your student loans. It was the Republicans in the in the mid '90s, after the after they were elected in '94 into, uh, you know, in that midterm election in response to to Clinton's election. So when we miss those midterm elections, bad things happen, mm -hmm. right? So so now you know Trump can declare bankruptcy all he wants. If you want to declare bankruptcy on your hundred and twenty thousand dollars of student loans. Good luck. You can't do it, right? And um, and so, and we've seen that. And so that was the '90s, right? Now 
and now it's even harder to become that a is graduate. A, that is a bullshit. <laughs> that, that you can't, and uh, you know, a millionaire can, you know, yeah. Yeah. but you can't. You know, you can't. Not on your student loans. He's right? sleeping in the Hamptons, and he's claiming bankrupt. You know? You're sleeping on a mattress on the floor, yeah. <laughs> it's like over a liquor store. <laughs> you can't, you know, like, yes. what's going on? Yes, so we need to, I think we, we need to be mad about that, but we can't think that outrage is enough. We've got to go to meetings. It, one thing that I've learned, and, I've, and, and this is it's bittersweet, but there, one thing I've learned is that important stuff happens in meetings, and you have to be there. So you have to be at the meetings of the Democratic Party at the local level because the city council makes a difference, right? They're the ones who enforce building codes. I've heard about, I've heard about students living on linoleum floors in a converted garage that, so, sorry, linoleum that's placed over a dirt floor in a converted garage as a bedroom. Jeez. In Bowling Green, right? Well, who's responsible for that? How do we make that change happen? we have to have people who are going to fight at the local level for that. We have to have people who are going to hold the leaders of the Democratic Party at the state level accountable to what we need. And if we're not at those meetings, they don't pay attention. Um, if it's just old white ladies that show up um, to, uh, to do canvassing um, in the midterm elections, they may not go to the black neighborhoods that they should be going to to get out the votes, right? Mm -hmm. We have to show up, and we have to hold people to a higher standard um, at meetings. And meetings totally suck, and there's a lot of bullshit at meetings. And you have to develop a thick skin for that. So I think if there's one piece of advice that I, that I wish someone, or it's not even a piece, if, if, I, if I were to think of something that a, that a mentor could have taught me when I was younger, it would be to deal with bullshit in meetings. Because I get mad and quit. That's what I do. <laughs> I'll tell you. I mean, I'm, I'm honest about this. Like, I get really upset. I think I can't work with these assholes, and I'm, I'm out, right? And, um, and so I've had to work really hard to not do that and to show up even when I'm really upset about something. And, and I wish someone had shown me earlier how you can react calmly but quickly to somebody who's trying to screw you over in a meeting because they have some petty thing that they want to accomplish that's going to hurt everybody in the process. Um, and uh, so that, in terms of skills, that kind of resilience in meetings, but also, man, in conversations with people who, who haven't thought enough about things that they say, which can include me, you know. <laughs> but having resilience, I think, is really important. Um, and. And I'm not sure that the culture of outrage that we have on our social media contributes well to, a, to developing strategies of resilience. We tend to get upset and block people, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's, what this is, that's our solution. Is I don't want to hear this anymore. I'm, I'm cutting this conversation. I love the debate, though. Ooh, I feed off it. I, ooh, ooh, I wish somebody would. I'm, like, I'm excited. I'm well, like, it becomes like a reality show, too, you know, where we, where we get excited about the drama. But it's not clear that that's helping us work towards a, that's true. a, that's a messy. resolution. That's messy, and I can be messy. But thank you all for coming. Like, oh, if you man, have any like you. closing remarks or anything, thank you. I've been talking to. Oh you. well, I thoroughly enjoyed um, you know uh, indulging in this uh, debate and discussion, and um, I 
I hope that, um, again, back to you, Matthew, that young people can, uh, you know, pick up the mantle now and make the world uh, more like the kind of world they want to live in, you know, and that's not going to happen, you know, just like that. It needs committed people to work and, and make that change because uh, as, you, as you get older, you will realize that uh, in order to get what you want, you have to work for it and, and um, society, in society, power is distributed unequally, okay? And so you have to acquire power and acquiring power means that you have to get more and more and more people to to agree with uh, your values and uh, outlook and and make a difference politically. To then that's what the Tea Party did. They acquired power, political power, and and that's what needs to be done. Younger folks have to get into politics get into um, uh, social services and make their voices heard, get, uh, band together and form uh, uh, activist groups and, and create countervailing power um, to, you know, and that's, that's how you get to um, craft the kind of world that you would want to live in. Matt, thank you, man. This has been really fun, and uh, and I'm I'm excited to always excited to talk about things with you and with anybody, um, and I, I agree with with Dr. Malcote. You know, we it, we have to get involved. We have to we have to vote. We have to vote in the midterm elections, because <laughs> really, the, you know, it, you just got to think about the dominoes that fall after you know through that. You know, if you don't if you don't vote in those, and and the Tea Party takes over everything in in 2010. Then there's nothing that Obama can accomplish in you know in the years following that, right? Um, that's exactly what happened, right? And so I, I you know, and there's questions about what he might have accomplished anyway, but we don't need to get into that. It's clear <laughs> that he, that he really couldn't accomplish anything after that. Um, I think we have to keep having hard conversations with people that we don't want to talk to. I think that's a really important thing, you know, and, and it's not easy. We have to be resilient and self-assured and think, you know, I don't care what this person says, maybe there's some good in them anyway, you know, anyway, <laughs> um, something that we can agree on. And, uh, and we have to, you know, we have to go to meetings and, uh, and that sort of thing, and it's not easy. The, the biggest thing, though, I think, is that we have to, it's important to be outraged, we have to do that, but we also have to talk about the world we want and we have to talk about it even if it seems silly right now. Mm. And we have to keep talking about it. And that's the way things change, is that you say things that appear silly, and the more people that say them, the less silly they appear. I've learned this. <laughs> I, I used to, it's, it's true. The more times you say something, and the more courage you have to say, hey, this isn't a bad, you know, socialized medicine is not a bad idea. The more that people actually start thinking about that, and, and this happens in our interpersonal relationships, but it also happens publicly. And, um, and so I think we have to be courageous and talk about stuff that we think other people might think is silly. Um, and we have to do that over and over again and figure out how to talk about that with people that might really disagree with us and say that we're being silly. That is true, and that's such a stressful 
Uh, so stressful, but we in it together. You know, it's step That's by right. step. We can only do things together. Mm -hmm. Only as a nation together do we conquer. So, yeah. 